It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from the front line, analyse yesterday's confrontation between an American drone and Russian jets in the Black Sea, and we look again at questions of nuclear escalation. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 15th of March, one year and 19 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our Associate Editor for Defence, Dominic Nichols, and former NATO Commander Hamish de Breton-Gordon. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from the battlefront. Hi David, hi everybody. So let's start in the Donbass. We'll come on to the drone in a minute. So yesterday President Zelensky spoke with his top military command and they agreed to continue to defend Bakhmut in the east. Following the meeting, President Zelensky's office said in a statement, quote, after considering the defensive operation in the Bakhmut direction, all members expressed a common position to continue holding and defending the city of Bakhmut, unquote. So as we've said recently, they're making some hard, hard, hard calculations here about the number of troops they are losing, dead and injured, and the amount of destruction that's happening against is it in their operational and strategic advantage to continue the fight there for the for the price that they are extracting from Russia. They are they've decided that yes, that is still the case. It is still worth fighting there. I mean, part of the calculation there is if they go if they go back, if they pull back, they, they're still going to have a fight. So, is it better to to keep going where they are now, taking that toll from Putin's troops? Or allow them a breather and come back, come back next week, next month, what have you. So, you know, it is a brutal calculation. That that is what military and political chiefs are paid for, and that's what they're there to do. So, it, it is a very painful decision, I'm sure. I've never had to make it at that level, but um, yes, that is what they've they've decided to do. Now, other than that, I mean, we've said now for for quite a number of weeks, it's very violent and busy on the line of contact but not a lot else happening militarily across the country. And I, and I would say that again today. However, just to give you an idea of what a 
I wouldn't say a quiet day, but what a what a normal day, if you like. You know, the the current normal is in Ukraine. So figures out from the from the Ukrainian MOD. Now you, know, you could suggest you could take them with a pinch of salt. I, always wise to have that little note of caution in the back of your mind. But I think Ukraine have been have been found to be pretty reliable on numbers. Anyway, they've put out the following figures for for yesterday, which, as I say, if we were short of time, I would have said actually. Not a lot else happened elsewhere around around the country. So yesterday, there were 40 Russian airstrikes across Ukraine. There were 100 multiple launch rocket system attacks across Ukraine, 12 other missile strikes and widespread shelling. Kramatorsk, the city kind of in the, sit- in the, um, in the centre of the country on the, on the river, Dnipro River, that was hit and a three-storey residential building was destroyed. There were, there were killed, civilians killed and injured there. Another missile strike in the town of Zatoka, which is 20 kilometres down the coast from Odessa, so south of Odessa, down the coast. A missile strike there partially damaged a children's school. No civcas there, no civilian casualties, but uh, yeah, this this is happening, and this is this is a daily on a daily basis. Now, the Institute for the Study of War, that's the Washington-based um, think tank, that they did an interview with Insider, which is an online online media outlet, and they've said that for the whole of February. Since this, the Russian spring offensive, which I, I, I subscribe to the idea that it is underway. This is it. This is all they've got. You know, men running at Ukrainian lines. I think the spring offensive is underway. The Institute for the Study of War are saying that for the whole of February, the amount of territory Russia controls in Ukraine expanded by less than 0.04%. Now, they've been taking hundreds of casualties dead a day. We think we think that's accurate. Sometimes over a thousand. So it's a a, a colossal toll. And I, I mentioned that to bring you right back to the first thing I said was about the, the meeting yesterday with Zelensky and the top military and political advisor saying keep fighting as they are in Bakhmut because Russia is not moving forward to any great degree. I mean, I have to. I, I can't say they are not moving forward because they are. But 0.04 percent is is rubbish, and they and it's costing them dear. But that is a that is a, a, a snapshot of what a what a, a currently normal day in Ukraine looks like. Now, last night, the big news was this incident over the Black Sea. A Russian Su-27 fighter jet uh, interacted, interdicted, did something with an American MQ-9 Reaper UAV, unmanned aerial vehicle, drone for shorthand. We're not entirely sure exactly what happened, but there was supposed to be harassment for about 30 or 40 minutes after which there was some impact on the on the drone and it and it either fell out of control or was then directed by controllers back in Creech in Nevada satellite link obviously to the to the vehicle in the black sea directed into the sea so so I, mean, I don't i don't know where it was exactly so I don't we don't know if it if there was any danger of it landing on land but it was directed into the sea ostensibly to um you know for safety or as i say it might have been completely out of control now there were suggestions that the the Russian jets. I mean, bearing in mind the speeds here, so that the, so the drone's going max speed, two hundred and fifty miles an hour, something like that. The jets can go up speed of sound. They're basically going to stall if they tried to if they tried to come down to the speed of the drone. They're going to stall and fall out of the sky. So, yeah, they were they were buzzing it effectively. There were reports that uh, at least one of the jets dumped fuel either to clog the sensors. So these are cameras, other ISR intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance sensors that would be hoovering up imagery and electronic data from ukraine so so yes i mean this is not this is well it can't be secret just have a look at flight radar 24 the website this will show you all the air activity 
and you'll see these drones, you'll see the patterns, UK, US and Swedish um, surveillance missions, both drones and and manned aircraft. There was that incident last year when the British rivet joint plane, which is an, an electronic warfare aircraft, was... Um, well, there was a Russian jet fired a missile in the vicinity of. So this this harassment's been going on for a long time. We'll come on to the to, to the consequences of what it means in a minute. It was immediately denounced by the U.S. U.S. State Department summoned the Russian ambassador um, and said he said that the American aircraft had had deliberately and provocatively quote unquote moved towards the Russian territory. Going to mention that in a, in a moment. The Americans said that this was just. I mean, it's in international airspace. It is a blatant, a blatant act of aggression by Russia. So that's what's happened. I'll now, I'll now just take a little, little pause there, and we'll come back on uh, on what it, what it might mean. Thanks very much, Dom. Yes, I mean, just to go over some of the reactions, State Department spokesman for the U.S. Ned Price said it was a brazen violation of international laws. U.S. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer called the incident another reckless act. Hamish de Breton Gordon, what was your reaction to the news? Dom, David, good good afternoon. I I think there are a couple of things here, and I, and Dom Stom's piece in the paper today, I think, was absolutely spot on. First of all, had this been a manned aircraft, we'd be in a completely different position here, and it, the discussion between manned and unmanned is 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 probably for another day. I don't think this was a couple of Russian pilots, you know, having a bit of fun, thinking, right, let, let's go and buzz a, you know, a. a U.S. aircraft and flip it over. It's uh, probably something that has been, it's probably an operation planned at a much higher level. Whether it goes all the way back to Moscow, who knows? And, and the reasons behind it, I, would, I, I know that we're going to come on to, but um, it's very clear that the strategic intelligence and even the tactical intelligence, what we call the sort of dynamic targeting, that, that granularity of intelligence we're going down to very specifics, very detailed sort of grid references, which undoubtedly has been provided by the West to Ukraine, you know, is having a significant effect. And no doubt, as as things, you know, again, as you described, things are fairly quiet at the moment, but nobody expects that to last for too long. So there may be a greater intelligence picture around this, which um, the Russians are trying to affect. But I must say, it's a potential bit of brinksmanship, potential bit of escalation. And perhaps a bit later, I can talk about the stuff that I've been writing about today in The Telegraph. But very interested to see how people react. And I think probably what the US has done at the moment is the right thing to make sure that the Russians know exactly how serious this is viewed. But at this stage, not wanting to go any further to give the the Russians the sort of moral advantage if the US decide to, you know, interdict other aircraft. And interesting enough, I think yesterday again reported in the paper that uh, I think it was UK and German typhoons intercepted a Russian tanker, I think it was, up in sort of Eastern Europe somewhere. So that sort of thing happens all the time. Taking out American drones certainly doesn't. And um, be interested to see what happens next. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Hamish. Can I just ask both of you very quickly, I mean, Hamish, you touched on it there, but can we just remind our audiences what these drones are actually doing, you know, in, in terms of what is, what is, can we say you know, with, with some precision, what kind of intelligence they're gathering? Is it um, photographic? Are they listening? Dom, would you, would you have any thoughts on that? 
Yeah, well, it's all of that basically. Um, so that you've got a you've got a very good camera, which which is you know a day night camera. So that'll be. I mean, at the kind of ranges you're talking there, that's probably not the the primary means, the primary intelligence asset that they're that they're using but it will be hoovering up electronic data so every time a russian air defense system powers up for example it'll be emitting energy and if you if you grab all those little ones and zeros and uh, and the rf the radar the radio frequency energy you can you can identify what it is and then you can identify where it is and then you can pass that information i don't think i mean we, this has been widely reported there there is intelligence cooperation I wouldn't go as far as say coordination, but certainly cooperation between the US and um, the, the external supporters for Ukraine and the Ukrainian military. So all that kind of information would be, would be passed on. There'd be radio intercepts. So if Russia is not using secure communications, or even if they are, and that's been broken by by the US, NSA and, and GCHQ and others, then you'll be listening to the traffic the, between commanders about, about dispositions, where they're going to move, when, where they're going to attack, what, they, what they're going to do. I mean, put all this together with those daily British defence intelligence updates when we hear things like um, it's highly likely that Yevgeny Prigozhin of the Wagner Group is in a spat with Shoigu over uh, reinforcements and artillery ammunition. I mean, where do you think this stuff's coming from? Uh, that, yeah, of course, it, it, it's, a, it's a, a fascinating, murky world, the, the, the idea of intelligence and espionage. There's human human intelligence, but actually ELINT, electronics intelligence, and um, indicate uh, what's it called? Measurement measurement and signatures, MAZINT, measurement and signatures intelligence. That that is this this sort of interpretation of the electronic signatures that are being given off by machinery and and weapon systems that all of which can be can be hoovered up. And if you know what you're if you know what you're looking for and listening for, then you can identify bits and pieces on the ground. As a quick analogy, um, a lot of effort in the maritime world, in the in the world of navies, a lot of effort goes into listening for the sounds of aircraft carriers and, and enemy destroyers and what have you, and the actual the physical sound frequency of the propellers of these things, so that you then know you put that in the big database, and then when you hear that noise again somewhere else around the world, you go, ah, oh, that's the Admiral Kuznetsov. I mean, you would actually know it was the the Russian flagship aircraft carrier because you'd see belching smoke across the horizon. But anyway, the point is that you could listen for the propellers and know what it is. It's exactly the same thing here with electronic intelligence. If you know what a um, what a what the the Russian air defence systems quote unquote sound like in electronic terms, then when you pick up those frequencies and those signals again, you will know that that you you can assess that that's what's down there. So again, we comes back to the the probability that the language the intelligence assessors use. They say, I've got this piece of information, as in, I know that's what a caliber missile um, sounds like in electronic terms. Second piece of information, I'm getting these signals that, that are about the same. Intelligence assessment is, I think there's a caliber cruise missile in the air. So you, know, you always have to caveat it with, with the, um, and this is where we went wrong with Iraq, one of the reasons we went wrong with Iraq, the caveats to intelligence is always very important to say, well, you know, we can't be absolutely 100%. This is an intelligence assessment, but it, but this is what we what we think it is and why. So they're hoovering up all that data, not only for use now, but for use in the future. Thank you very much, Dom. I'll ask you both just for any more thoughts on this. And I guess one question for me would be, I mean, as you said, you think the Americans have broadly done the right thing in, in their reaction to this. Uh, do you see this this incident spilling over into another day or, or continuing for the rest of the week? Or do, do we think that it, it's happened now, there's been, there's been reaction and it's not escalated? Perhaps I'd just, just come in ahead of Dom before he does his bit. The only thing to add on the on the drone piece is what we call 
dynamic targeting or precision strike. This is where these drones are armed predominantly with Hellfire missiles. Not in this case, I might add. But interestingly enough, Ben Wallace, the Defence Minister, said in Parliament on Monday that a UK drone in, in Syria armed with Hellfire had taken out ISIS's key chemical and biological weapons expert. So that is the other element to it, but absolutely no indication that that's the case in this particular piece. As far as the reaction goes, I think I'll just reiterate what I said earlier on. I think absolutely right. We need to be very careful with this. But perhaps as we go on to talk about brinksmanship and what else might happen, it's very important that uh, generally in these sort of cases, UK and US use strategic ambiguity as their way forward. I think in, when it comes to taking down drones and preventing escalation to greater weaponry, it's very important that certainly presentation in the public that the UK, US and the Allies make absolutely clear their thinking and what they're likely to do in this particular case rather than mute themselves. But uh, I think at the moment they've probably done the right thing. Thanks, Hamish. Anything more from you, Don, before we go on to Hamish's uh, article? Yeah, just a couple of points, if, if I may. I think the reaction to it is very telling. So what's happened? So Anatoly Antonov, the Russian ambassador to the US, was summoned by the US State Department and then he spoke afterwards and he said the Russian planes and he said quote did not come into contact with the unmanned aero vehicle and returned safely to their home airfield so this is classic Russian I mean that's probably true they I doubt they did come into contact there's talk of oh it clipped the propeller I don't think a Sukhoi hitting a hitting a propeller of a of a Reaper bear in mind it's got big tail fins if you hit the propeller you basically hit the whole airframe as well I, can't, I don't know if that's true um, I, I think probably pop dumping the fuel did something or just flying so close to it at speed could have, could have disrupted it. In my little gazelle helicopter when I used to fly for the British Army, I had to stay at least a mile behind a big airliner because of, of the weight turbulence, the amount of turmoil in the air behind the a massive objects moving through the air. Now, obviously, you know, the Sukhoi is not the size of an airliner, but it's going a lot, lot faster. So just to think what the air is doing around it, if you whiz one of those things past sort of top gun to maverick style you know get close to the drone then the air the air flow is just going to be all over the place and it could tumble out the sky so I'm, i think mr antonoff probably telling the truth when he said they did not come into contact with the with the drone but it's all part of saying of russia of forming that impression in the minds of people who are who are less inclined to immediately say well what the hell were you doing there anyway to form that impression in their mind as well, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're being reasonable. They didn't come into contact with them. I mean, they, they are telling the truth. It's, it's very clever the way they are they are framing the debate. Now, he also said, Mr. Antonov also said they're collecting intelligence, which is subsequently used by the Kiev regime to strike at our armed forces and territory. Again, probably telling the truth. But you know, hey, boohoo, and and it's holy. Don't go invading our friends if you don't want us to to do this sort of stuff. This is you know, it's classic, classic Russian framing that or trying to frame the narrative. Russian MOD said the drone was, quote, violating the boundaries of the temporary airspace regime established for the special military operation, communicated to all users of international airspace and published in accordance with international standards, unquote. You know, it's not for you, Russia, to decide any temporary airspace regime, even if you did communicate it to all users of international airspace, again, trying to make make themselves sound legitimate. Who the hell are you to say what the temporary airspace regime is and who can fly where? in international airspace. You do not get to to redraw these boundaries and then say, well, it was was violating the boundaries of this temporary airspace regime. I mean, it's just an, an attempt to... Uh, 
uh, justify their actions, establish new facts on the ground or or in the air, and 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 say, well, you know, he did nothing wrong. It, you know, it was clearly, clearly in the area that we have defined as out of bounds. I mean, very, very interesting framing. Coming back the other way, even more interesting framing, I think. So the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, a New York Democrat, he said yesterday. Quote, I want to tell Mr. Putin, and sorry, listen, listen to this carefully, please. He said, I want to tell Mr. Putin to stop this behaviour before you are the cause of an unintended escalation. We have seen this behaviour from the Russian military before, and it will not deter the United States from conducting operations over the Black Sea. These aggressive actions by Russian aircraft are risky, and I could, uh, and could lead, I repeat, to unintended escalation. End of quote. Now, he said the words there, unintended escalation, twice. He even made damn clear we all knew it by saying, I repeat, those two words, unintended escalation, who are those aimed at? I reckon China. What does China want? China wants a stable world order, albeit you know, working for itself. Beijing wants stability in the world order, doesn't like this war. Putin promised Xi a, a quick three-week in and out. It didn't work like that, so... Xi Jinping is not happy. They want they want stability. They want global order. So anything that is that's unintended has all sorts of ramifications. It could could go anywhere. An escalation. They absolutely do not want that. Now I think very interesting. We'll, we'll come on to Ron DeSantis' comments a bit later. I think, but uh, but I I read that message from Chuck Schumer as directly directly not appealing to China, but speaking to China and saying, look, you know, you're going to Moscow next week. Then you're going to Kiev. You need to tell that bloke in the Kremlin to. to to, to stop this because there is unintended escalation um, on offer here if this carries on. This is the, the first time uh, for, a, for a very long time that the US and Russia have come into direct confrontation. There was a dust-up in Syria in 2018 when hundreds of Wagner troops were killed. Before that, in 2015, Turkey shot down a Russian SU-24 jet that had strayed briefly into Turkish airspace after repeated warnings. So NATO has hit and downed Russian stuff before. But but this is it is very, very rare. And this, um, you know, was not a was not a crude vehicle, as in, you know, it was not manned. But this was still a, a strike by Russia against America. And so the, the risks of this unintended escalation are are huge for all of us. And I think that was a direct message from Chuck, Chuck Schumer to Xi Jinping ahead of his visit next week. Thanks very much, Dom. Well, let's stay with this idea of uh, escalation and unintended escalation. Hamish, you've written a really, well, in some ways quite worrying, but fascinating piece for The Telegraph that's out now on the on the website. Uh, I believe it'll be in the paper tomorrow. You, I mean, over the past year, you've been looking primarily at the impact of the invasion on the nuclear power plants and the, of the risk of nuclear escalation. What are your latest thoughts around this? Well, Thanks very much for, for publishing it to begin with. And I would say that this is a, an academic paper I've been writing for the last six months with Bob Seeley, MP for the Isle of Wight and Foreign Affairs Committee and a PhD in, in Russia, and also a chap called Ted Bromond, who's part of the, the Heritage Think Tank based in Washington. So I will repost the paper because it goes into a lot of detail, but very apt, I think, when it comes to brinkmanship. Number one, I would say, you know, the, the sort of exam question is, will Putin go nuclear in Ukraine and what do the Allies need to do to prevent that? I mean, I think it is still highly unlikely, but not inconceivable. And, th- and that's the sort of start point there. Um, 
We looked and interestingly, I got a hell of a lot of comments already on the Telegraph about it. And somebody pointed out to me, which I hadn't really considered, that, of course, Putin has used nuclear and chemical weapons in this country already. Alibite on a micro scale with the polonium attack on Litvinenko in 2006. And of course, the Novichok attack in Salisbury, where I'm talking to you from in 2018. And, and we looked very closely at Putin to try and work out, you know, his sort of thought processes here. And, um, you know, not, number one, that the whole nuclear issue has been to keep NATO out of Ukraine. And, you know, reassuringly, in a way, that that just hasn't happened. So, you know, Putin's number one aim with his nuclear threats has not worked. So, you know, that gives us a little bit of solace that that's um, not going to happen. I think when we look at Putin himself, I mean, the stories about him that he's been talking about how, how he saw a cornered rat in Leningrad as a young man, and that really sort of focused his thinking, is all part of this sort of image, I think, that the Kremlin has tried to create with Putin being this ruthless former KBG agent who's unafraid to take bold action to defend the motherland. And, you know, Western audiences have l largely fallen for that. But, um, you know, the probably reality is a bit more nuanced. Um, you know, Putin is probably far more rational and calculating than perhaps, you know, opponents give him credit for. And, um, you know, I like I like the Gary Kasparov line that, um, you know, he's fond for the good life. Kasparov says Putin wants to rule like Stalin, but uh, live like Abramovich. And uh, when things are going as they are in Ukraine at the moment for him, brinkmanship and where he goes next is absolutely key, which is why we looked into it. When we actually what he could do, I think the strategic side, that is the Armageddon global nuclear war, is still, you know, virtually inconceivable. And, and when we look at the tactical nuclear weapons, which we've talked about before, interesting enough, somebody, somebody gave me a figure, which um, you guys might know better about, that, you know, between 40 and 60 percent of precision guided munitions fired in the Ukraine conflict by the Russians have either the fate, failed to hit their target, hadn't detonated, or both of the above. And uh, when we look at his tactical nuclear, um, there are a lot of people who believe, and I agree, that they are they are probably unusable, which again gives us a little bit more confidence on the nuclear side. But as you introduced there, I think the, the biggest concern for me is, is the nuclear power stations, because taking down the infrastructure, the power and the heating infrastructure, I think Putin said, I'm going to turn the lights out. Nuclear is absolutely fundamental to that. And we only heard last week that uh, the power had gone off at Zaporizhia, you know, this massive nuclear power station. And, um, you know, we're, we're only a misjudgment or a miscalculation away from a disaster there. So and there's sort of so what to all of that, the, the UK or, or, or the West, predominantly the US and, and ourselves and the French, the, the nuclear powers opposing Russia here. You know, we, we talk about strategic ambiguity. I think there is, again, for public consumption, a little bit like we were talking earlier with the drones, that, that perhaps we need to be more direct on this. And I personally believe, whether it is actually British government policy or not, I'm sure people wouldn't want to go there, that you know, if there is a nuclear use of nuclear weapons of whatever type by the Russians, it would be met by an overwhelming conventional response. Now, I think the, my US colleagues are very clear to point out that this wouldn't directly be by the, the US or necessarily the UK, but would be enabled by. And that would 
caused the, the the complete meltdown of the the Russian army. And I think you know the state of the Russian army at the moment is is obviously a huge concern for Putin. And and without forgetting, of course, that we've got two hundred and fifty or so modern Western tanks coming up over the horizon, and the possibility for for a major offensive by Ukraine. Conversely. We've had last week the massive missile attack coming out of Russian forces after a gap of a few weeks, including the much vaunted uh, ultrasonic missiles that were untouchable, which, you know, have barely caused a ripple in Ukraine. And I'm no doubt that is, you know, a huge concern for Putin and his commanders. So, we are getting to a position which we articulate in the paper where, you know, perhaps if the offense if the ukraine offensive goes well and perhaps the, the the line between the donbass and the crimea is broken or even if you know ukraine forces make deep inroads into crimea there may well become a position where putin uh, really looks deeply into yeah, what what he's going to do next and um, you know he might make one of the most fateful decisions of the century whether or not to employ nuclear or chemical weapons, which is why at this stage we are suggesting to the UK and US government that uh, they may need to make it absolutely certainly uh, clear to Putin and his generals and everybody else that uh, you know, the allies in the US will not sit by uh, and allow that to go unnoticed. But I think just before I stop and hand over for comment, I still believe that it is because I know how terrified people are around the world about the whole nuclear issue, that it is highly unlikely that the Russians will go nuclear because I don't think they can. And I don't think it will achieve Putin's strategic objectives. And he still is, you know, in some ways rational. Well, thank you very much for that, Hamish. I'm struck by one of your lines in the piece, strategic ambiguity is simply too risky in in this case. I think that's a very interesting point, which you've just alluded. Just one question from me, Hamish, before we go to Dom. But one of the things you talk about is in terms of communication is, well, on the one hand, you need to make it very clear to to the Russians what the, the Allies' response would be and what, why it therefore would not be in their interest to do anything. But there's also an issue of uh, communication with your own civilians and Ukrainians, uh, Ukrainian civilians and civilians in other countries and communicating with them that if the worst was to happen, what do you, you, know, what do, you do? You, you've been working quite a bit on this, Hamish. Could you, could you refresh our memories and just tell us a little bit about, about how that communication works? Yes, absolutely. And th- thanks for bringing that up. This whole process really um, developed after, after my time in Syria, where civilians were, were the main, were, were, were the complete casualties and the chemical attacks there. And people were just telling me, you know, we, we don't know what to do. So we, we started making these very basic sort of training apps that people would knew, know what to do. Because it, it in response to a nuclear attack or even a chemical attack, generally what you do is slightly counterintuitive. So working with the Thompson Foundation, who are the organization who do a lot of training for, for, for you journalists when you, you go into war zones and elsewhere, working with them, we've produced on Telegram these two uh, training courses on how to, basically how to survive a nuclear attack or nuclear accident, uh, and the same for chemical and biological as well. And uh, that, that has 
hopefully got very wide coverage around Ukraine and also in the surrounding countries because people are naturally concerned. And it's nothing different from what happened in this country during the Cold War. Some people might remember the black and white BBC sort of cartoons uh, and actually you'd get a a pamphlet through your door once or twice a year just telling you what to do, reminding, you know, have some tin food available, have some water available and um, you know, if there is an attack, go undercover for at least 24, ideally 48 hours and wait for direction from the government. And the emergency services, uh, civil defence in Ukraine are, are actually pretty switched on and switched together. Um, in Syria, I work very closely with the White Helmets to do the same sort of thing. And again, in Ukraine, trying to help the emergency services. So that um, most people now have the app and have the, the basic four or five things you need to do. And there is a mechanism through the civil defence and emergency services to get people information. Because we, without wanting to bore the, all the listeners with the detail, particularly with radiation, it's all about the dose that you get and the type of radiation you get. But but radiation is relatively not simple, but it is is straightforward to be able to te- detect it if you have the right stuff around, and you know if you if you don't have too much of it and you get out of the way, then well, these things are very survivable unless you, you're in the immediate vicinity of a, of a of a nuclear explosion. So so we've been doing that, and I, I will repost those the, the the direction to those particular apps. And again, anybody in Ukraine, hopefully you can easily download it and look at it on Telegram. And if you've got any questions, do DM me on that. Thank you very much for that, Hamish. Uh, Dom, what else do we need to know about the world and Ukraine today? Yeah, so yesterday, President Zelensky has dismissed more officials. This continues a pattern of culling officials through the through the administration all with a view to tackling corruption. There's no suggestion the official sacked yesterday were, were corrupt, but um, this is all about trying to try, trying to appeal to the EU for reasons we've spoken about uh, about recently. So yesterday, the governors of uh, Luhansk in the east, Odessa to the south, and the city of Kamenitsky, which is about 200 k's southwest of Kiev, they were all all dismissed. No reason given, but like I say. President Zelensky's made no, uh, he's not trying to hide the fact he's, he's, he's trying to clean up the government, tackle corruption ahead of um, any possible accession to the EU. So I spoke to our, our friend and colleague Aliona, Aliona Hilivko, former Ukrainian MP. Hi, Aliona, about the significance of this. And she said that this is probably to do, well, it's all to do with the, all to do with that the idea of, of, of tackling corruption and what have you. And this is probably, in the case of Luhansk and Odessa, looking at the ties, close ties between officials with Russian agents of influence and and the failure to prevent any infiltration. And then in the Kamenitsky area, it's probably more to do with mismanagement of humanitarian aid. I mean, that city in particular, she notes, was is the biggest home, home to the biggest number of military bases in western Ukraine. So Yes, is, is a is a very important area. So that's continuing the move there from President Zelensky. The only other thing I'll mention is that um, British Foreign Secretary James Cleverly, he's going to be in Moldova and Georgia tomorrow and Friday. Uh, he's announced a new package of support for governance, economic reforms, help to hold fair elections and and has built on previous anti-corruption work the British government has funded. Now, it's only 10 million quid which is you know a lot of money if you're trying to find it in your pocket but you know not not a great not a great sum but it follows other other um, similar sums and um other practical assistance such as 
help with defending against cyber attacks or combating Russian disinformation, reform of the armed forces, that kind of thing. So James Cleverly said, quote, few societies understand the underhand tactics of Russian malign activity more than Moldova and Georgia. The UK will not stand idly by while Moscow blatantly undermines their democracy, sovereignty and territorial integrity. We must reinforce their resilience to Russia's hybrid threats, safeguard the democratic choices for their people and protect them from the threat on their doorstep, unquote. So, yeah, I think this is this is good. But, you know, look at the wider context, especially with Ukraine seeking NATO and EU membership. I just wonder if there's a chance here for Ukraine to to get a steal a diplomatic march. Now, you know, they are busy. They've got um, 300,000 Russians to deal with first and foremost. But the thought of for the reasons we again discussed recently with that, uh, the summit, the Oxford Ukraine summit I was at on Monday, it's going to be a long time before. Ukraine is invited into NATO and look, looks like the EU as well. But in order to deepen security ties with those institutions and the West more broadly and external support and, and make the country you know, a, you know, intensely a pivotal player, valuable to all those institutions, I, I wonder if there's a, a role here where Ukraine could aim to be the sort of regional champion countering malign Russian influence in Georgia, Moldova, maybe even you know Azerbaijan, perhaps eventually one day Belarus. It could be that that linchpin in the east, you know, with a border with with Russia. The history we're going through at the moment. I just wonder if there's a role there in the future for for Ukraine to be a, a regional champion, yeah, yeah, countering this type of activity from Russia. But just, just there was just some, some random thoughts from me. Thank you very much, Dom. Let's go to our final thoughts then. Dom, you can go. You've just spoken for quite a few minutes. So, Hamish Breton Gordon, would you like to go first? Certainly. And, and thanks again for having me on. I, I know lots of people are really concerned. I see it on my Twitter feed and, and comments on the piece in the Telegraph today about, about the whole nuclear thing. But I would state, I re- restate that I think it's still highly unlikely. And as long as we, you know, as long as our leaders do the right thing, I think that that'll be the case. The other, I, I usually give an update on the tank firing on Salisbury Plain and Bovington from my position here. The only thing I'd said, it's been silent for a while. And, um, you know, hopefully all that heavy metal is is now well on its way. And uh, hopefully will give uh, Ukraine the boost in its spring offensive with, with the modern Western heavy metal to allow them to prevail. Well, thank you very much for that, Hamish. Dom Nichols, would you like the very final thoughts? Thanks. I'll just go back to the drone and more importantly, the fallout from it, no pun intended, but the, the political comment and and response. So you've got Ron DeSantis, who's the Florida governor. He's, I think he has said he's going to stand. He's going to stand for the the presidency yeah i think that's i think that's right i think he's already declared but anyway he has said that he's declared that protecting ukraine is not a vital interest for the us and called the war a a territorial dispute between kiev and moscow now he is more in line with donald trump on this and this area although he's you know going to be standing against donald trump when it comes to ukraine they seem to be on the same page but his comments then put him very starkly at odds with those of other senior Republicans, such as Mitch McConnell, who back support for Ukraine. Now, Mr. DeSantis has said that, that, quote, the Biden administration's virtual blank check funding of this conflict for as long as it takes without any defined objectives or accountability distracts from our country's most pressing challenges, which he then he, he talked about, talked about the threat to their borders and primarily China. And I, so I think it's going to be really interesting to watch the response from the U.S. 
politics, particularly the Republican Party, got presidential election in, in two years time. So they're starting to they're jockeying for position now. And Ukraine is is right right in the middle of that because of what it what it means in terms of values. And I'm just I just want to you know, if Mr. DeSantis doesn't draw a direct line in terms of vital interest between what's happening in and to Ukraine with what he seems to see as the bigger thing against China, then I think he's mistaken. And I think it shows a an insufficiently mature view of of world geopolitics. You know, dare I say it here from the the Telegraph, Mr. DeSantis, but you know this is all about this is all about values. Okay, and if you don't think that the values of of, of international law and order are at stake here, or, or if you if we allow them to be challenged and allow this idea that might is right, and you can roll over borders and you know turn just just uproot international norms and and law just because you want to, if you think that's acceptable then guess what China are going to think about it? And, and if you see that as the bigger fight, Mr. DeSantis, then, then this, is where you, this is where you test it. It's almost you know, a clunky analogy, but if you see the world's response to COVID as a kind of a little bit of an idea about, well, how the hell are you going to deal with climate change? You know, this is a little sort of tester, a little teaser, a warmer in the bank. How are you going to handle that, fellas? If you don't, if, if you don't see that for exactly the same reasons, we are getting correctly heated over the disgusting war in Ukraine as this is what this is the way that China is going to act over Taiwan and the international rules and norms for the next century and God knows how long. You know, I think you're mistaken. And and this is where you make your stand. And if you if you decide it's all too difficult now and we'll come back in a few years' time and deal with China, I don't think that's going to work. I think I think it'll be bigger and and worse then. This is where you have to this is the bud and we need to nip it. And I think Mr. DeSantis's comments there by saying it's not in America's vital interest to get to support Ukraine, I think is 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 mistaken. Now he says he, he's criticising President Biden for not having defined objectives and so on and so forth. That might be fair, you know. We need to have some idea potentially for what what the US would like to see here, or maybe they're going for constructive ambiguity. They don't want to be too don't want to nail their colours to the mast yet. That's fine. That's politics. That's that's the that's the U.S. You know, domestic politics taking those positions. But on the broader issue of whether or not this this matters in the big deal of things, then I think it absolutely does. And I think we we, we the world, those that want to stick by the by the, the the norms, the rules and norms that were formed out of the ashes of the Second World War, this this is the time now to stand up and say they do matter, and we do need to support them. And we're not going to accept it now. Ukraine, and we're not going to accept it in the future in any any potential dust-up in the South China Sea. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Robbie Nichols.